This is 5 minutes to midnight. I am Mohammed Al-Zafani. It's almost 20 years since the US-led invasion of Iraq, whose declared aim was to get rid of the country's alleged weapons of mass destruction. As is well known, no such weapons were found. But the regime of Saddam Hussein was toppled, and Saddam himself was captured and hanged. Since then, Iraq has gone through a period of occupation by US and Allied forces, an armed insurrection by the Islamic State group, acute and ongoing political instability, terrorist violence and debilitating corruption. Despite huge oil revenues, which in 2022 totaled $115 billion, Iraq has seen little development in the two decades since the American invasion. Its infrastructure is racked and its per capita income in 2022 was a mere $6,700 and is forecast to fall by 3.7% in 2023. With me in this episode is John Davison, who until October 2022 served for four years as Reuters Bureau Chief in Baghdad. Welcome to 5 Minutes to Midnight, John Davison. Thank you, Mohammed. Thanks for having me. All right, our first question. You lived and worked in Baghdad for four years. What else can you tell us about your background? Um, so before Baghdad, um, where I spent sort of the four years immediately after the defeat of Islamic State, um, I was in um, Cairo for about a year with Reuters. Before that, I was in covering the Syrian civil war uh, with Reuters from from Beirut, but also had the chance to uh, travel a few times, especially to northeastern Syria, to, to cover the end of the Islamic State Caliphate there. Um, and uh, before Beirut, I was in uh, Jerusalem, where I worked for Agence France Presse uh, as a correspondent. And then uh, before that, I was I was your colleague at, at BBC Monitoring, uh, monitoring, um, you know, propaganda in, in different languages from uh, from from Reading. Uh, a, a brilliant and varied career. Uh, according to Transparency International, Iraq is the most corrupt government in the Middle East. Can you give us an example from your experience in Iraq of how this affects the lives of ordinary people? Yeah, I, I think, you know, if, if we're talking about examples which affect everyday people, uh, in their everyday lives, kind of in the most uh, basic human way. Um, there's one example, one interesting example, which um, I came across before I, I left Baghdad. I was working on a story about corruption and uh, a member of parliament who um, had all these documents which he alleged um, where he alleged were all, you know, perfectly true and, and documented, and, uh, and and could potentially bring people to court, but of course never, never, never did. Um, uh, and it was it was about the the healthcare system. So the healthcare system in Iraq, uh, which used to be you know the envy of of many countries in the Middle East, is now completely decimated by mismanagement, corruption, nepotism, uh, you name it. Um, and the example that this, uh, that this member of parliament had, you know, uh, brought to me um, was that there was a hospital in his 
hometown in the south of Iraq, which had been um, ordered, he alleges, by the health ministry to buy 600 years worth of CPAP masks um, at a price of around seven times what they normally cost. So a CPAP mask is a mask through which maybe COVID patients would breathe um, from oxygen uh, tanks and, and, and they had just ordered a huge amount of these paid over the odds to a company that was owned in part or in whole by one of the big political parties in, in Baghdad. Um, the hospital director had complained that we don't need this uh, this many masks. We, we, we actually need to spend the money on other things, but was sort of uh, told to go ahead with it. Now, if you imagine you're an Iraqi in the south in that city and, and you need urgent medical care or, or, or medical care maybe for a chronic illness, you go to the hospital and there's not enough medicine for for your condition because it's all been squandered on you know 600 years worth of supplies that the hospital doesn't need um you know that means that that could affect your life it, it could it could end your life worst case um and so you know the healthcare system is is an example and that is one example that's one small example in one hospital in southern iraq of exactly you know uh, the, the kinds of practices, the kind of misspending or overspending that's taking place. Um, the other, the other issue in the healthcare system as well is that you know uh, because of nepotism, people are appointed to uh, positions in hospitals or in the health ministry who, who probably shouldn't be in them. Um, so, and and I remember quite vividly being during the COVID um, pandemic, being in in Iraq, and there was a lockdown which wasn't particularly well enforced, but you just didn't want to go out. I didn't want to risk going out and catching COVID because as Iraqi friends would say to me, you know, if you go into an Iraqi hospital with COVID, maybe you're not coming out of it. Um, so the corruption really affects people's lives and, and, can, and can take people's lives um, in the worst cases. It certainly highlights the scale of the problem of corruption in Iraq. Uh, Apart from corruption, Iraq has been afflicted by chronic political instability, which has often obstructed the formation of governments and made it difficult to enact legislation. To what extent is this due to the sectarian quota system, which was introduced by the United States after its 2003 invasion, as an attempt to ensure proportional government representation for Iraq's ethno-sectarian groups? Yeah, now this is interesting because most, I think most ordinary Iraqis who I've spoken to will immediately blame the quota system, uh, which is called mohasasa, which in Arabic means literally sharing. Um, and the system was brought in after 2003 um, to, to guard against sectarian violence and, and to keep the balance. So, you know, since Saddam uh, was ousted and, and, and a new government um, came in in, in in the years after the invasion. Um, the the uh, president, the top government jobs, the top jobs in in ruling the state, which are the presidency, the prime minister's office, and the um, uh, the parliament speaker position, uh, are always taken by uh, the Kurds, the uh, Shiites and the Sunnis, um, respectively. Um, and so this system, I, it's difficult to know the extent to which the system itself is the cause of 
problems, is the cause of political squabbling and so on. Because the realities on the ground in Iraq are that um, people tend to be loyal to their sect or their ethnicity or their clan, uh, first and foremost. Um, so, for example, let's 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 take the years pre-Islamic State. The sectarian uh, quota sharing system was in place, um, and it gave you know, a fairly even balance to the three main uh, ethno-religious uh, groups um, and some seats in parliament and uh, positions in state-owned companies uh, and um, uh, officer uh, grades in the army to different groups. Um, in reality, because the Shiite Muslims were the dominant um, sect under and especially under Nouri al-Maliki, um, his government was was notorious for for corruption along sectarian lines, um, for not giving jobs, uh, for allegedly repressing Sunnis, um, and this led to you know a lot of sympathy or at least readiness to accept when Islamic State came along, um, opposing the government. So the realities on the ground are very different from you know whatever system is in place. Um, the other, uh, the other thing about any uh, sectarian or any quota system, let's say, is that at some point you're probably going to come to a, a, um, a, a choice of having to pick somebody who is less competent for maybe a civil service job because they're from a, a, a party or ethnic group, and by law you have to, over somebody who might be more competent um, but is maybe from the main dominant sectarian group. So it's just a system which which leads to all sorts of conflict, leads to all sorts of uh, abuse, I think, um, in, in its essence. I don't think that means it's wrong, but in practice in Iraq, it's it's been blamed for a lot of the ills in, in that country. How compatible is this with democracy as understood in the West? Um, I think... Uh, many Iraqis that I've spoken to would would rather see a system which allows the most competent people to be elected uh, to run the country, people who are going to do good for the country and its people, people who have a, have a vision. Um, on the other hand, as I said, in reality, I think a lot of other Iraqis um, whilst they might give lip service to that, to that idea, they would always um, vote along sectarian lines in, 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 regardless of the system in place. I think the, the loyalty is often to clan first, then ethnicity or religion second, and then to the nation, like it is in, in, in many countries. Um, so whether the system is compatible or not with democracy is possibly a debate that I'm not qualified for, but the system is always going to be subjected to the crude realities of, of, of trying to trying to put those that you know that trying to put that system in place. Thank you. What's your assessment of the roles of Iran and the popular mobilization forces in Iraq? For the benefit of our listeners, the popular mobilization forces is the umbrella group of militias formed in twenty fourteen following the Islamic State group insurrection. Yeah, the, well, uh, my team and I actually did quite a lot of work on the uh, popular mobilization forces in the aftermath of Islamic State's defeat because um, they had participated in a big way in the fight against Islamic State. 
um, and felt that they were owed um, a share of political power. Um, some of them were already in power in, 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 in the government, but, uh, but others um, wanted to get power in parliament, wanted to get uh, positions in uh, lucrative uh, directorates of different ministries. Um, and they did gain a lot of power. Um, a lot of MPs were elected who were former commanders. Um, there were people put into uh, positions where they controlled a lot of state money who had been in the militias before. Uh, and the militias also extended their control over territory. Um, this is significant because um, Iran is the prime supporter of the most powerful of those militias. And so it gave it even more uh, influence over Iraq. Um, I think that the equation changed a bit um, for maybe two main reasons. Um, firstly, um, a lot of people saw that the militias were doing exactly uh, what um, political predecessors were in trying to just take over the resources of the state instead of reform the system. Um, the euphoria of Islamic State being beaten wore off. There was no longer a military conflict. Um, and so people started to look at them with a bit more scrutiny. Um, and in 2019, you know, mass protests broke out um, across Iraq um, with anger directed at the government, but also in a large part at these paramilitary groups. Um, what then happened a few months or a couple of months after the protests broke out was that um, the United States ordered the killing of uh, Iran's top uh, Quds Force commander, Qasem Soleimani, um, and an important paramilitary, Iraqi paramilitary commander was killed in the strike as well. It was an airstrike near, near Baghdad airport. Um, and what this did was to rest a bit of the very close control that Soleimani had over the militias um, from Iran. Iran found it difficult to control them. Um, and the, let's say, the influence of the militias and the influence of Iran by extension was um, shaken. Um, I think now, in this current phase, Iran and a number of other countries, including the US, have been much more hands-off in the way that they intervene or, let's say, interfere. Uh, get involved in Iraqi politics, Iraqi economy, Iraqi trade. Um, they've been holding the country at arm's length whilst also trying to make sure their interests are intact. Um, so, you know, Iran retains a lot of influence, probably more influence than any other uh, power or country um, in Iraq. Um, but, you know, it, it has been stung and I think it has its own problems at the moment. So the militias are still there. Um, the popular mobilization forces are still there. They're very much part of the state, so they're powerful. Um, but yeah, that's not something which is which is always guaranteed. I think as as, as they learn. How about U.S. influence? Does the United States exercise much influence over the Iraqi government nowadays? I don't think so. I think uh, the high point of U.S. influence um, was probably quite a long time ago in Iraq, and we're talking several years. Um, the Americans have had to be focusing their attention elsewhere, and I, I think the Americans look at Iraq as a place where they simply have to um, counter Iranian influence. I've been told as much by by some by, by U.S. officials on occasion. You know, we look at this primarily as, okay, what do we do to make sure that Iran's um, 
you know, malignant activities are, are not allowed to, to take place. Um, but they don't have the same political clout they did a long time ago. They have a minimal number of troops in the country now. I think it's a couple of thousand at best. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't think they're able unless there's something I'm not seeing, but in my experience in Iraq, I haven't seen that the Americans are able to influence events uh, particularly significantly, apart from maybe this strike on Qasem Soleimani, but I don't think they get involved in the, in the details of, 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 of the political process in Iraq, and I'm not sure they want to anymore. How about Islamic State groups? Has it been completely wiped out in Iraq, or does it still enjoy support among the country's Sunni Muslim population? Um, I think most people, um, most Iraqis despise Islamic State's ideology um, and wouldn't want to see it come back in any form. I think Islamic State is probably about the weakest that it's been in the country. Um, that said, um, as we've seen before, it doesn't take very long for or very much uh, instability or mismanagement or corruption or repression um, you know, by a government or by various groups for, for, for a group like Islamic State to take advantage of that, maybe to come back in another guise to, to win over or force themselves on local populations. So, you know, it's, it is a sensitive time and, and there will, of course, always be supporters of Islamic State. Um, if there weren't, the group wouldn't exist. And I think there are people probably in Iraq who, who still support it. I think they're in a very, very, very small minority. Um, um, and most of them um, might be under investigation or locked up now. But, um, you know, you can't discount that the group does have support and it's looking for any kind of um, opportunity to come back. Um, but yeah, it's, it's I, most Iraqis, you know, 99 point whatever percent of Iraqis um, absolutely would not want the group to be, to come anywhere near uh, there, the places they live again. Thank you. Uh, my final question. As you were leaving Baghdad last October, could you see any light at the end of the tunnel? Yeah, I, it's it's difficult. It's always a difficult um, thing as a journalist to be able to look optimistically at, uh, at, at a place like Iraq where there's been so much dysfunction, destruction and and, uh, and mismanagement, and, and the, especially when those are the things that you have been covering and reporting on. Um, when I first arrived in Baghdad, and I think I went through three cycles of diplomats or ambassadors because they would spend a year or two years in, in, in the Iraqi capital, um, particularly Western ambassadors would sort of, the new ones would be very optimistic that they could work with the government of the day to help improve the country. And I think by the time they left had often been um, a little bit disappointed, um, which is probably an understatement by, by the possibilities for making Iraq a better place um, through, the, through the current, let's say, ruling class. Um, Having said that, it is much more secure than it's been. When I was in Baghdad, I was able to walk or drive pretty much anywhere I needed to go. I, I would also, also maybe every month uh, take a trip to a different part of the country and just see as much of Iraq as I could uh, up close. Um, and was able to do that in, a, you know, pretty good security. So a semblance of normal life has certainly returned, but I think there are problems bubbling under the surface which are, which we don't see. They're not, you know, 
the mismanagement we Iraqis see, but from the outside, maybe we don't notice as much uh, the corruption, the uh, nepotism, um, and ultimately that all breeds instability. So I think unless those things are fixed uh, at the root, um, there will be more instability there, unfortunately. Any final comments? Um, just that I, I think the thing that made it, the, yeah, the, the thing that made it um, the best thing about working in Iraq was um, the people that I worked with, the people who I met. I think Iraqi hospitality is, is you know, almost unrivaled and, and, and the Iraqis are very unpretentious because of what they've been through. Uh, because they can see exactly what the state of their country is and I think they are nostalgic for better times even if those aren't always remembered even those are sometimes remembered with rose-tinted uh, glasses um, you know it's just unfortunate that for these for these people their country is in a state of utter disrepair and I, I just hope that um, they're able to improve it I think if it were up to ordinary Iraqis and they were given the means they would be able to to make their country um, a better place to live. Um, but there has to be a lot of change before that happens. Um, but I hope it will. Thank you very much for a very illuminating episode. That was former Reuters Baghdad chief John Davison talking to me, Mohammed Aldafani, on Five Minutes to Midnight about Iraq and its blight of corruption and instability.